All right, welcome to episode 33 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very, very special guest. It's Kirk Schneider. And Kirk Schneider is a leading spokesman for contemporary existential humanistic psychology. He's an adjunct faculty member at Saybrook University in California and at Teachers College, Columbia University in New York City. He's the president of the Existential Humanistic Institute and a council member of the American Psychological Association. His latest book is The Spirituality of Awe. Welcome, Kirk. Hi. Thanks very much, Karen. Thank you so much for coming on, Kirk. So I actually wanted to start off with your latest article for Aeon Magazine, and I wanted to focus on a quote that you had, which was pretty, and I mean, I'm going to say this is going to sound silly when I read the quote, but it's poignant. <laughs> it was a very poignant quote, and the reason why it's funny is because you started off using the word poignant. And so, <laughs> and so I wanted to focus on this quote and ask you a question about it. So in, in the latest article for Aeon Magazine, you wrote, poignant transformations emerge from the depths of despair. But they result, if one is fortunate, in the heights of renewal. Yet what I'm seeing today throughout our culture is an increasing tendency to skip over this grappling part of the equation and to shift abruptly to the transformation part. So my question for you, Kirk, is what are the consequences of people skipping the sort of introspective or, I guess, yeah, the introspective work needed for maturity and growth? Like, what are sort of some of the results that you're seeing because of it? Well, I think the ultimate consequence is that uh, we actually, we don't just emulate the machine model for living, which I would describe as uh, an emphasis on uh, instant results, speed, appearance, and packaging, but that we end up becoming machines. And uh, people like uh, Ray Kurzweil and uh, this movement that uh, he appears to be associated with called transhumanism actually advocates for humans to eventually achieve what they call a singularity which is the point at which you can no longer distinguish the human from the from the digital or from the mechanical and uh, we, we seem to be moving headlong in that direction that's a lot of my concern. Uh, it's an extremely seductive direction, and I'm, I'm by no means black and white about it or a Luddite, but I have very strong concerns about how that's impacting us now and, and where it could take us in the future uh, if we truly become cyborgs, basically. Uh, so a lot of my concern is uh, how we are so preoccupied with our devices uh, smartphones are certainly a big part of that, iPhones, etc., the Internet, and, uh, and how this is impacting our capacity to be more present to ourselves and to others and, and to the natural world. To some extent, you could actually argue that we already are cyborgs because... The, the access to our phones, it, it's sort of like having access to an extended mind. And in that sense, and we always carry it around with us and we're always using it. Well, I mean, those of us that always do, right? I'm sure there are people who yeah. you know, go on uh, tech diets, mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that, that's, that, that does pose an interesting problem because if, if we look at how things are currently, uh, we do kind of um, defer to stimulus as opposed to kind of facing what it is that we're feeling um, most of the time. For instance, uh, if I were, I don't know, feeling uh, sadness or, or bored or something like that, as opposed to maybe asking myself why 
I'm feeling like this, mm -hmm. I might yeah. just uh, scroll through my Facebook news feed, go through, be distracted, eventually yeah. go to sleep or something like that, and not really face what it is that might be going on with me, as an example. Mm -hmm. right? yeah, well, I think, that's, I think that's right on. Uh, problem is that we're surrounded by seductive distractions. And uh, our devices are, are a great example of that. Certainly videos can be an example of that. Um, what, I, what I would call the sort of the machine-mediated model of consciousness, so much of our daily lives is media, are, are mediated by, by devices. And as a result, we're less and less facing the, the raw... Uh, the, the raw encounter with other people, with ourselves, and with the environment. And so, yeah, I think you have a point. In, in some ways, we, we, we are already certainly mechanistic, um, but uh, we, we at least we have the chance, and this is a lot of what my book is about, The Spirituality of Awe, the chance to really step back still and and look at uh, this headlong leap into the digitized universe you know what what is the price what is the cost I also I happen to be very fond of a quote is actually from my cousin uh, Jeff in the book where he uh, he says that uh, so much of our, our lives have been reduced to four-inch screens, mm -hmm. and, and all we need do is to look up to see the, the greatest show on Earth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, that's really poignant. The stars, the universe, other people, uh, our, our world. Yeah. Yeah, to, be, to be present with it, to, mm -hmm. to not distract ourselves, to not... You know, just be looking at that foreign screen mm -hmm. to really experience what it is life has to offer. Yes, I mean, and you just look at our bodies, the, the way we are constricting ourselves so much, uh, confining ourselves to these foreign screens. Mm -hmm. You see that, obviously, in you know, mass transit and in the streets so often. Um, just people at dinner with each other, and they're, they're constantly occupied with the phones and you know, fear of missing out, that kind of thing. What are we really missing out on? Mm -hmm. And so, Kirk, do you feel like the kind of mechanized world that we've created is a way for us to avoid our feelings, or was it sort of the main, I guess, the foundation of it? This is a very complex question. I, I mean, I feel like, in some sense, we've been in search for what you might call the Holy Grail. Mm -hmm. You know, the answer with a capital A. Uh, whether that's a god or a form of technology, uh, from time immemorial. Um, it's just that's a natural, an understandable desire of a, a rather helpless and fragile creature on a little speck in an in indefinite cosmos. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there's an understandable natural anxiety that impels us toward wanting, uh, wanting the answer, so to speak. But... I do think that it's it's accelerated by uh, by fear and by trauma, um, and I see this in, in terms of individual 
traumas that people experience as well as collective traumas. Probably there hasn't been enough said about collective traumas. Um, so this has been a lot of my focus on what I call the, the polarized mind, uh, which is the, the fixation on a single point of view to the utter exclusion of competing points of view. When we're scared, we, we tend to want certainty and, and solidity and absolute, you know, strong man or, or woman or uh, mm -hmm. uh, machine or, the, again, the, the god, the idol that's going to save us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, it, it appears, looking historically, that uh, we became increasingly fearful of, uh, of the natural world. Uh, I think uh, Michel Foucault does a beautiful job of, of uh, elucidating this in uh, Madness and Civilization. But there seemed to be a, a significant turn soon after the, the so-called Dark Ages, uh, the Middle Ages, where um, the, the human race, uh, in many ways, especially the, the Western world, uh, got scared shitless uh, by, by the, the disease, the, the pestilence, uh, the, the, the ignorance, uh, the, the degree of superstition and brutality of, of the Dark Ages. And, and, you know, a third of Europe was wiped out in the, in the Black Plague. And so around the 1400s, roughly, uh, maybe late 1300s, we began to take a turn toward uh, attempting to regulate our worlds and control our worlds much more. And, and, and probably as a reaction against this, uh, this, what I call chaos complex, terror of ending up like, uh, like beasts, you know, in, in a jungle. Uh, and uh, this raw fight for survival. So we, and at the same time, we began to rediscover, as I understand it, the Greco-Roman um, world of, of knowledge, uh, of uh, rational, rationality. And uh, this court's was associated with the Renaissance, and there were many beautiful aspects of that, you know, the development of science, of technology, of uh, mass production to help help raise our standard of living. But the question is, did we lose the baby with the bathwater? And I think this is what Foucault is raising, because also at that time we started to cordon off, to segregate that which we didn't understand and maybe had a, a more of a compatibility with in the past, uh, we basically began to cordon off our primal experience of nature in many ways. And, and nature became uh, alien to us. So we started to ship the mad, for example, uh, those who were considered insane, you know, actually shipped them out to sea because we felt that their madness was more compatible with the wilds of the ocean. 
than they were with a more controlled and uh, composed civilization that Europe especially was trying to rebuild. And we went to extremes in these ways. Uh, we, we obviously treated the mad more and more madly ourselves, brutally ourselves, uh, putting them in all kinds of very uh, tormenting situations that uh, cast them out uh, on many levels, psychologically, physically, in dungeons, etc., and, and off to sea. It's where Ship of Fools came from. Um, so, but, but the point being that uh, we, we became desperate for the answer of, uh, of the technical and the rational with a capital R. Uh, for the, the hyper-control and the, the, the hyper-sanitization of an otherwise uh, terrifying um, wilderness that we are literally emerging from. And I think this really has carried us into some of the destructive extremes of, of, of the development of technology through, through the ages, since uh, roughly the, the early 1400s. And, and we're still living under, under the, the aegis of, of the chaos complex. This is not brought up enough, it seems to me. Certainly don't see it on the latest news, do you? And it also seems like whether we're talking about religion or whether we're talking about technology or kind of, um, I guess, sort of uh, modern forms or modern ways of avoidance. I think that kind of the idea seems to me, the concept is that we're trying to avoid altogether understanding or facing human nature. Yes, we're, we're, we're trying to avoid understanding it, uh, you know, dealing with it in a, in a, in a more direct way. Um, I, I think, uh, again, going back to fear, that uh, this is very associated with uh, an anxiety. Well, I think Ernest Becker was really uh, right on with this, and, and terror management theory and psychology has been dwelling on this, uh, as well as a number of us in the sort of existential realm. Uh, death anxiety. You know, death anxiety, but it's a very complex, it's the complex symbol of death. It's not necessarily just physical death, it's, it's the terror of, of the groundlessness of existence, the, the terror of not counting, mm -hmm. of being uh, helpless, a helpless creature, before this vastness and power of the natural world. And, um, and, the, and the more that we are able to quote, conquer it, or at least have the illusion of power and control, the more seductive that direction becomes. Because, again, it gives us that illusion that we, we are significant, we are godlike, we are in control. And we've got, we've got all these devices and uh, uh, ways of pumping ourselves up you know, through through drugs and through uh, media, vicariously, etc., through, through our idols, uh, that, that give us this impression that uh, we are godlike, basically. It's, it's interesting that you say vicariously, because 
in, in essence, what we've created is this sort of um, sanitized environment that, at least through through our, because uh, what we we're, we're doing now is we're spectating a lot by looking at our phones and seeing how other people are living their lives. Mm -hmm. We're essentially yes. not living our own, yeah. and actually, yes. yes, this is a really important point. In fact, in fact, my son has been doing some interesting work, uh, Benjamin, on. Uh, on uh, the spectacle in, in, in contemporary urban centers especially um, how we're we're creating environments that are really about uh, commercialism and, and making more money mm -hmm. but that give people a sense that they are participating in the larger realm of, of life and of, of existence um, that make them feel like they're, they're more uh, more vital somehow. So you have sort of the, the disnification of mm -hmm. areas and cities that make people feel magical or uh, like they they're, they they you know they're in these imaginative realms. They can they can be more creative somehow. And, uh, uh, or uh, I think maybe one example was this uh, this uh, store called Urban Outfitters that gave people the the sensibility of being like in an inner city. Except that most of the people who many of the people who were shopping in those, those places were you know middle middle to upper class folks looking for certain clothes that make them feel like hipsters, whatever. But you'd see broken windows, right? And, <laughs> Part of the scenario there, um, you know, to some degree, music festivals can give us this sense of participating in something orgiastic and and beyond our unfortunately humdrum mechanized lives. Mm -hmm. But again, how how real is it in the sense of how much we're we're actually encountering and, and grappling? with these kinds of raw experiences in our everyday lives and in our work and in our relationships. So, again, it's, yes, we're very good at veneers and illusions, and, and certainly uh, VR, uh, virtual reality, is another very challenging mm -hmm. uh, point in this, in this problem because it can, it can be very convincing that what you're dwelling in in those actually pre-arranged controlled environments are, are open systems like what we experience in in raw nature where, where you never know what's going to happen and you you literally we, we literally don't know because it's so far beyond us virtually anything could happen at any moment when we're in the raw environment mm -hmm. right and that's part of the the energy of it part of the vitality of it uh, that's why I talk about the sense of awe as a humility and wonder, a sense of adventure toward living. Yeah. Well, that that is uh, that allows for the the flourishing of the sense of awe because genuine surprise is possible at any moment, and and in the way we approach those open environments as well. But when you have a subtly controlled virtual environment. It seems to me you, you really closed the system in many ways, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Math, mathematically arranged. 
Yeah, in, in a way you almost know what to expect. Maybe not at first. If it's a virtual reality that you've not experienced before, of course you may experience surprise. Mm -hmm. But yes. if you can run that simulation over and over again, then that's not, that's not reality. That's yeah. not an accurate representation. And then also what I was also thinking was in terms of kind of what we do with music festivals or even like sports kind of events is that it seems like in a way like the way I was thinking of it is let's say a fan of some team going to a Super Bowl and feeling like oh well my team won so now I feel like I was a part of this really meaningful and important thing. So for me it's like um, it's not so much of a personal meeting although probably people think of it that way but the idea is just being a fan or being a spectator and being a part of something that's sort of connected to you but then sort of not tends to make people feel like their lives are now sort of infused with purpose yeah and and there's 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 a, a lot of beauty to that there there is a naturalism to that i mean it's like this kind of tribal mentality a sense of belonging mm -hmm. to what's community culture uh flag or however you want to put it <laughs> but uh the question is how far does it go and and uh how vicariously are we living today through other powers? Yeah. I'm happy that you say that. Um, going back to Becker, uh, to Ernest Becker, and uh, in the denial of death, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna butcher this. Uh, I can't say it verbatim, but um, that the the world should be, or the earth, or no, the world should be viewed as an arena for heroism, not one that you spectate, but where the glory is meant to be had. I love that. Yeah. So. For, for that football example, maybe as opposed to being the person, and there's nothing wrong with cheering and enjoying yeah. football. Oh. Yeah, you could do both. I enjoy football. I have to admit it. I, I love to yeah. play too, but I stopped unfortunately at a pretty young age. But but yeah, the, the, as you say, yeah, the the point might be to actually to engage, but to play, for example, right? Or maybe whatever it is that that would be your arena, because different yeah. people resonate with different. Right, right. Things, I think know. I think yes. also the idea is that that meaning isn't found solely in sort of um, being a spectator, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that that's the point. If it becomes if it becomes a be all and end all, mm -hmm. then you end up uh, just a kind of uh, I guess a, a puppet in a in a larger show. And then of course, the question is who's controlling the show? That's another issue. Mm -hmm. it's who's profiting? Yeah. Your illusions of. of of power and control, mm -hmm. and of course there are very major powers behind it, usually corporate powers. Uh, but uh, yeah, this this question of being able to f draw from one's whole bodily experience of life, I think this is this is one of the great challenges, and this is one of the things that that, that I love about uh, let's say sports. You know, uh, is that there's a raw contact with nature uh, in uh, I grew up in the Midwest and a lot of snow so I mean you know we'd be playing ball in the snow or, you know you feel the mud on your feet and all over you and, and, and you'd land in the mud sometimes and you have contact with each other physical contact uh, of course there is a shadow side this can be dangerous if it's too extreme, and, and there are, I think, very legitimate questions about being overly destructive in certain sports. But but at, at, at some level, all this activity and, and the ability to expand out in the natural world, uh, that was a wonderful part of growing up for me, and I, I feel sad for a number of kids 
today who do seem to be kind of uh, insulated in terms of you know their their play yeah. through, through devices, etc. And I, and I know again, I, I know older generation always <laughs> if I rags them. <laughs> Right, I mean, I think the idea is one of sort of degree, right, rather than one of quality. Yes. It's not so much that devices themselves are good or bad, it's the fact that just they're overused. That, that's my point, and, and that they're overused because we haven't come to terms with a number of these collective and individual traumas that are propelling us to become polarized, in this case, toward uh, the mechanical world. And how would you conceptualize those traumas? What do they look like? Well, I, I gave you the historical example mm -hmm. before. I, I, I think, uh, and in the polarized mind, I, I look at how power centers throughout history uh, have often uh, become more extreme and inflated, actually, uh, because of, of certain woundings. Uh, the Greeks had a, a couple of great terms for this. Uh, hubris and nemesis. And uh, so hubris often came out of a kind of reaction formation against uh, feeling brutalized by another civilization. And so you, you have the, the Greeks and the Persians going back and forth, and, and Athens and Sparta. I mean, these wars, these, these rivalries, when they, they become... Uh, extreme tend to cause extreme wounding and an extreme sense of insignificance and helplessness which then activates the cycle of hubris which is a kind of overreaching in terms of one, you know, one's military let's say or one's uh, uh, image about one's society sort of nationalism xenophobia can kick in ethnocentrism and, and then you brutalize the other culture. And so what do they do? They lash back as a nemesis. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you have hubris and nemesis going back and forth in cycles throughout history. And we see this kind of thing. Well, it goes back to the Babylonian myth uh, of uh, uh, Tiamat, I think is the nemesis name. And how she and her husband were trying to control the kids and the coming generation and actually they were so out of sorts about one of the sons who was trying to change things in that civilization that uh, they kind of they put a contract out on it. <laughs> and and uh, there was so much terror on the on the children's part that uh, that then they they came up with a, a god named Marduk they wiped them all, uh, especially the older generation. And my point being, we see these cycles throughout history. If, if you look at uh, even, at least I see in contemporary authoritarian uh, cultures, uh, Stalinist Russia and Maoist China, uh, um, Hitler's Nazism in Germany. I mean, each of these cultures were coming from very, very wounded places. Economically, in terms of their 
self-pride. Um, you know, in, in Russia, you had the, the tyranny of the, the czars and the opulence and the, uh, the, the extreme uh, ostentatiousness of the, the wealthy classes. And uh, you're gonna you're gonna get a backlash eventually, which, which they they got. China was, you know, tormented by colonialism, and, and the West, and and same with Japan, you know. Uh, so backlashes and, and attempts to purify and, and become uh, great and, and immortal in some sense, in, in their own right. And Nazi Germany. Uh, you know, the, the terms at uh, a precise. Yeah. So the way that these cultures dealt with the trauma is essentially through power, or through fostering their own sense of power and control. Yes, yes, very much. And then in individual lives, and you often see the individuals who lead these cultures having had personal traumas in their own lives, they parallel mm -hmm. the traumas and the sense of insignificance that their cultures have had. Mm -hmm. So they're rising in concert with each other, and you, you have a, a recipe for, for disaster. Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty much how wars get started. Yes, and, and many of the people in the... Well, I was saying that many of the people in the culture experience similar kinds of traumas. They often have to do with de degradations, uh, prejudices, yeah. uh, you know, a sense of belittlement. And to focus on alternatives, I first want to read a quote from Kirk, and this is regarding existential psychotherapy. So Kirk wrote, existential, well, existential therapy emphasizes three major themes, freedom to explore what deeply matters to oneself, experiential or whole-bodied reflection on what deeply matters, and responsibility or the ability to respond to, act on, and apply what deeply matters. So my question would be, Kirk, let's say if somebody were to ask, you know, let's say they were to come from the standpoint or from the perspective of, you know, kind of having, let's say, a traumatized, um, let's say, background. Um, and they were to say, okay, so, you know, existentialists constantly talk about finding meaning in life. What is that? What does that look like? How would I go about looking for or kind of finding what my meaning or what my purpose is, especially when it feels like things are so hopeless? Well, this is where I suggest in a kind of... Uh, tongue-in-cheek way, but I'm also deadly serious about it, that, that we could really use an army of depth facilitators mm -hmm. who, who, who could be available, you know, at, at, at very low cost or in some you know, publicly accessible sense mm -hmm. to, to the, the millions out there who feel uh, this, this kind of loneliness and uh, desolation. Um, we, we simply, simply put, we, we need much better public mental health in this country. We, 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 we have to get beyond the bandage, band-aids of, you know, uh, uh, six-week therapies or anger management uh, or uh, some medications to, to kind of plaster over gaping uh, relational wounds that people have that require much more uh, consistency in terms of availability of fuller, deeper, richer human relationships. So that's that's for the long term, <laughs> I think, for society to work on. But in, in the shorter term, of course, uh, I would suggest that people seek out longer term 
intensive depth psychotherapy. Existentially oriented, I believe, is optimal because it deals more in the here and now and not so much uh, talking about the problem, which can create distancing, but helping people to experience their, their pain, their struggle right here and now beyond the verbal and, and develop an ability to stay more present again to their whole body experience of, of both what they're striving for and what, what is blocking them and what they're striving for. But obviously this is not available on, on a very mass scale and what we have more available are the like quick fix, instant result uh, remedies. And again, I, I don't want to paint this as all bleak. These can be life-saving for many people. Medications can be life-saving and they get people through the night. And, and the programmatic therapies can be life-saving. But, but again, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They're not the be-all and end-all by any means. And they, they shortchange many people from asking deeper questions. Uh, beyond, you know, being able to sleep and eat and function at work. But uh, the question of how they, you know, fully want to live, what, what deeply matters about this time and space. So uh, certainly books can, can help people to begin reflecting on these things. Uh, I mean, Decker's book is a great place for people are a little more academically oriented. I think uh, Thomas Moore's Care of the Soul is, is a pretty accessible uh, work that can evoke these deeper questions for people's lives. Um, we found uh, in, in research that uh, one of the differences between people who have been deeply traumatized and, and degraded uh, as kids and who later become sociopathic versus those who have been deeply traumatized and later become creative artists, let's say, or, or just uh, more, more vital, engaging, uh, stable human beings is, is uh, having a helpful witness, as Alice Miller put it, somewhere along the way. If it wasn't the parents or one of the parents, Maybe it was a neighbor that was a model for this this child. Like a mentor? Like a mentor, but, yeah. but somebody yeah. who could really relate, who, who experienced something of the trauma that that kid experienced, and, and yet has come through and survived. I mean, I think yeah. this is what the wounded healer phenomenon is, and for good psychotherapy as well. Oh, Kirk, can you tell us about that? What is the wounded healer? Well, the wounded healer is is the the healer that uh, has had some taste of what their client or patient has gone through in their lives, uh, but has a has been able to maybe through a helpful witness in their own life to work with that uh, that disarray and, and that uh, that terror in their lives and, and not only work with it but have found a way to, to thrive and and have found a way to 
grow from it, actually. It's one of the points in my article that the trauma and, and, and terror are openings, as well as potential imprisonments of the human psyche. As they rip open our world beyond the routine and familiar. And, and that can have a very fruitful consequence if one can work with it and work through much of it as well as a very uh, damning consequence uh, that we, we so often see in you know, the forms of uh, destructiveness, individual and collective. Um, and, I, so, and actually, since you brought that up, um, from your article, there, there was something that stuck out to me. Um, I, I'll just read it here. Um, here's a list of sensibilities that I probably would have been spared had I been drugged and plugged into devices as a child. The trial of being alone, the angst of great sorrow, the inertia of great despair, the shudder of great fear, the terror of fragility, the distress of uncertainty, the bitterness of rage, and the panic of feeling lost. And then um, also what came a little bit after that is, uh, but uh, here now is a list of sensibilities that I likely would not have developed had I been drugged and plugged the creativity of being alone, the sensitivity of experiencing sorrow, the mobilization spurred by despair, the defiance sparked by fear, the humility generated by fragility, and the possibilities opened by uncertainty, uh, and the strength aroused by rage, as well as the curiosities prompted by disarray. And the last one here, the self-exploration, depth therapy, and inquiry uh, inspired by uh, and this is quoting you, by my entire ordeal. And, yeah, facing uh, facing what it is that um, you encounter in life, as opposed to what it is now that we're kind of dealing with uh, by being distracted, is, is essential and more necessary than ever, given the distractions that we have. Yes, and... And to see the paradoxes of these so-called negative emotions, mm -hmm. again, in, in our world, is so emphasize, emphasized on positive and being happy and mm -hmm. the whole positive psychology movement. And again, some, some real value to this. Certainly uh, better to, to have some positive attitudes and qualities in life than to be all negative. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Again, what are we losing out by not seeing our lives in a more complex uh, and, and nuanced way? That, and I, I felt this directly, uh, as, you, as you quoted. Uh, I was able to see these so-called negative, many of these negative emotions as, as openings to greater sensitivities and wonderings about life um, but but that is because I had you know understanding parents uh, terrific therapists who uh, who helped me to to stay with these and, and look at their many sides uh, experience their many sides uh, but where where can people find that today? That's that's part of the, the issue, especially if they don't, you know, have the funding. Yeah. Right? 
And it's sometimes hard for, I think, all of us to see the bigger picture that we're sort of a lot of times stuck in our emotional states, especially the negative ones, and we think that it's always going to be like that. And, um, you know, we have a kind of a hard time looking back and thinking of the moments where, let's say, we were sad or we were grieving or we were angry, and then kind of in the longer run, something really positive came out of it. Yes, uh, and, and so much of that has to do with being, as we say, arrested or stuck. Mm -hmm. At the point of the trauma, where a kid doesn't have that perspective, they don't know that being angry could could be funneled into standing up for oneself, at some point, or to feeling righteous indignation about something, uh, or that being sad can attune them to the poignancy of life, you know, to to the the, the beauty of the moment, or. The, the capacity to be moved, to be deeply moved, even if it's if it's painful, it, it's still uh, a richness of living. Uh, how can you see that if if you're in a state of terror uh, around the the struggle, whatever it is? Mm -hmm. And many people also seem to struggle with being alone, and they think of it as, oh, well, if I'm alone or if I'm isolated, there must be something wrong with me. Yet so many creative figures have come out of that sense of isolation, and out of sort of the deep work that was done, just being by themselves and using that time to be introspective. Definitely, definitely. And this is another one of my concerns about the continual tethering mm -hmm. to the computerized or the digitalized world. Um, do we do we ever really, or how much do we step outside of all that uh, occupation with devices and just wrestle with a particular relational issue or uh, you know cultural concern that we have, uh, maybe creative concern. Uh, will we continue to have the capacity to be in solitude? And solitude is different than loneliness. Loneliness does tend to have more of a negative vibe to it. Um, isolation. It's often uh, more of a compulsion, a fear of connecting with others. But solitude is... I think more of a sort of a, a deliberative, a choiceful position that one takes time to be with oneself and with with life itself. Thinking of the uh, you know the archetype of Henry David Thoreau at Walden, mm -hmm. um, be with your thoughts, be with your feelings. It gives you a chance to regroup and reconnect with your more of your core. Core self, core desires, core concerns. Values. Yes. Values, absolutely. And this is where, you know, taking walks, uh, some kinds of uh, journeys alone can be, can be very restorative. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you mentioned uh, paradoxes before. Like, for instance... Um, for me, uh, in my early 20s, I grappled with the paradox of love and hate. There was, uh, I had this uh, relationship, somebody I, deep, <clears throat> I deeply cared for, cared for me as well. 
and resulted in a breakup, and that's a natural order of things that that happens, right? Mm -hmm. um, and but here's the thing: I struggled with uh, feelings of hatred or negative emotions for the person, even though we had shared amazing times together and uh, she had a great impact on me, I had a great impact on her and things like that. And it took me, if I, if I didn't spend the time to think about what went on and that it really was a worthwhile experience, that gratitude for it and uh, that I, even the way things happen, you know, they, they happen for certain reasons, something that I did, something that maybe she did, and as a, you have to kind of integrate all these different perspectives. I, I wouldn't have been able to realize that uh, the bigger picture of, okay, it didn't work out, but this person was still somebody meaningful, and I kind of resolve that, uh, those, two, those two feelings by kind of just seeing that, uh, okay, it's, it's not meant to be, I can move on, but I don't want to necessarily write this person off because it wasn't all bad. That well, to be, yes, I appreciate that very much. I mean, to, to be, to, to be able to see that your, your anger or your, your outrage toward this person is, is a part of yourself, not your whole self, I think is, is key here. Um, and, and it sounds like you were afforded a space I don't know if it was a therapeutic space. Fortunately, no. I, I, I wish I had that. Uh, actually, uh, I'm one of the one of the you know many people that uh, would benefit actually from uh, yeah. Therapeutic Unfortunately, space. Kirk, in our culture, it was like although as kids, a lot of us in our kind of group may have definitely benefited from therapy. Our parents didn't really understand what it was or what its purpose was. So it's like um, depression really isn't a thing. So we're Russian. It's unfortunately it's not really a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But you're very fortunate that, that you were able to uh, find that, that path uh, on your own and uh, basically to come into the more of who you are. I mean, I, I'm, I'm relating to what you're saying very much because there was a time uh, many years ago when, when I, uh, I also I had a very painful breakup and I was very far away from this person and from my home of origin and and it really lost at sea and uh, and uh, had some great anger uh, toward, toward this person. There was a part of the overall pain. I also had great love mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, for, for her. But, uh, but part of it was I, I, I spent uh, a good deal of time allowing myself to... Uh, to go to, to very, very angry places uh, in, in my imagination and even visualizations. Um, but in the context of uh, therapy that uh, encouraged me to stay with what was unfolding and, and well, and like a great mentor of mine, James Bugenthal, used to say the most important word in psychotherapy is and. <laughs> there was an and, you know. Yes, there was very definitely that, that hostility and that, that, that desire for destructiveness. And there was something more. 
Yeah, and that, yeah. and that seems to always be the case when it comes to kind of um, people who struggle with black and white thinking, where they think yeah. of it as if I hate the person or if I'm angry at the person or if I sort of don't want anything to do with them anymore, that that's the only thing that exists there. Or if, let's say, somebody were to mistreat us, that that's the only thing that's going on. And so we kind of tend to view the world sometimes through our own narrowed lenses, not really accepting that sometimes, uh, I would say not even sometimes, probably all of the time, that the person who sort of has this deep disdain for you, well, maybe not all the time, maybe that's too, uh, too let's say, too simplistic, but it's at least a lot of the time when somebody does have some sort of deep disdain, especially in the context of a prior love, it's also because they deeply love you as well. Yes, yes. And, and wouldn't it be nice if we could just, uh, just tell people this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or just uh, intellectually have people understand that black and white thinking is a real, real problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it, it, it will, you know, keep you imprisoned yeah. for a lifetime. But so often it takes more than intellectual understanding about that. It, it, t- it takes a concerted period of really wrestling with and experiencing uh, both the. the very painful sides of, of your struggle, as well as what's trying to break through uh, the more of who you are yeah. in your whole body, whole body experience of that. And working through the sort of fear of vulnerability. That's also so. Some of the um, some of the best work that I've ever seen done is in couples therapy, where um, you would have two people who are just super angry with one another, and just there's a lot of sort of vitriol and hatred, and then sort of um, kind of the therapist might ask the couple to sort of talk about what's underneath all of those feelings, right, or what's maybe on the other side of them, and then they learn that behind the jealousy is sort of love, right, because you're not really going to be jealous if you're not in love or deeply in love with the other person, or, you know, kind of with all of the criticism comes also a lot of affection so what happens a lot of time in couples therapy is like when people can sort of break down their barriers and they're okay with being vulnerable and the other partner is like oh my god wow so you're like doing all of these shitty things because you actually really care about you you really love me or that i'm really i've been hurting you this whole time and i've been unaware of it and i've only been seeing the one side of the conflict all of the bad things that you were doing to me and you yeah you usually need to experience it to really know it Mm -hmm. just to be told that that's a better situation is not not usually going to hold up or may hold up in a short term mm-hmm. and kirk would you say that that's related to the concept of presence very much so mm-hmm. much so and what uh, is that what is presence how do we sort of conceptualize it it's a really tough uh tough term to define but um it, it's certainly a, a heightened awareness uh it's it's a capacity to connect with the fuller ranges of one's thoughts, feelings, body sensations, imaginings, intuitions, um, and as well as capacity to uh, to express. Uh, or engage the world from from that sort of larger range of uh, of awareness, you know, of content. So it's 
I, I like that idea of uh, this is Bugenthal as well. It's, it has to do with accessibility and expressiveness. Uh, and involvement is also a part of it. Um, can you involve yourself with your, your whole bodily being in a relationship or in whatever it is you're doing and to the degree appropriate? I mean, obviously, it's very hard to be so maximally present at every moment and probably not such a great thing, but... But uh, so much of our lives would be enriched by having this heightened sensibility, this whole body experience of life. I th um, the, the question, uh, what I see as two pivotal questions for existentially oriented therapy is, how are you presently living? Mm -hmm. And on the heels of that, how are you willing to live? So you have a, a kind of a freedom question there. How are you presently living? And so it's a, taking a look at what is your range of freedom? What is your uh, capacity to range within? Let's say, to explore. And then as you develop that capacity to explore and kind of inner freedom, how are you going to live it? How does that manifest in the world? Responsibility question. Uh, your, your ability to respond to that which you become aware of. So I see presence as dealing with both. And good therapy is it presents a kind of a passive and active mirror to the client to look into how are they presently living and how are they willing to live. Almost at every stage of the therapy, it really runs through it implicitly or, or explicitly. Yeah, and even probably overcoming the sort of the constant sort of factors of avoidance, especially in terms of technology. Oh, very much so. I mean, they, they, if they look into that mirror and see where they, they really feel that their lives are cut off and blocked, um, that can be very powerful information. And maybe powerful information about over-attachment to devices or to vicarious living and not really living themselves. Yeah, so, wow, Kirk, that was such an amazing discussion. I can't believe an hour already passed. Uh-huh. Hey, really? Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you guys really gotten down to, to core questions. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that you were able to share your story of your heartbreak. That was, I thought that was really important for us. I, I appreciate yours as well. And hopefully, uh, you know, people will, will be able to find has that, uh, that echo some of these paths that we've we've been discussing here and, or, or, or creating, helping to create those kinds of paths for themselves. Yeah, and hopefully also showing people that maybe taking responsibility or figuring out what's meaningful and what's important to you doesn't necessarily have to be as scary as you thought. Exactly, exactly.
and to to have compassion for yourself in the process that it does take time often. Yeah, and then it's okay to lean in because it's just a part of the human experience, and that as long as you have a kind of helping hand with you, that nothing terrible is going to happen. As scary as it is. Yes, that is so often true that what we fear will happen uh, generally just does not uh, match what we actually experience. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Alan, final questions or thoughts about anything before we go? Oh, uh, Kirk, if, uh, let's say we wanted to find your book, The Spirituality of Awe. Um, where could we find it? Well, it's directly available from University Professors Press, which is a wonderful press, by the way. They, they uh, have many existentially oriented books, and they're actually focused on that. Really uh, welcome independent press. Um, and Amazon, you know, it's readily available as well. So, um, or, or other online out outlets. Uh, I might mention my website uh, if I could. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, and, and social media handles. My work, yeah, it's, it's uh, mm -hmm. com. And where can we find you on Twitter? Twitter, uh, at kschneider56, I believe. <laughs> You're not very active on it? Um, no, not not as, <laughs> not as active as many people today, but I, I do check in periodically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I engage with some of these contemporary devices you know, <laughs> as, as, as the spirit hits. <laughs> as long as you're not overusing it and using it to avoid. Exactly, exactly. I'm trying to be a little vigilant about that. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for coming on, Kirk. This was a really meaningful conversation. And please come on again. This was, I could yeah. have gone on for another hour. Yeah, yeah, most yeah. definitely. Likewise. Likewise. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Kirk. Wow. That was a good episode. Yeah. Wow. All right, guys. Yeah, so uh, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Yep. Like and subscribe. The bell. Yep. So follow Kirk, buy his book, <laughs> and also I'm gonna definitely buy it today and leave a review. Yeah. See you guys next time for episode 34.